Concerns over wages prompted the Bloomington City Council to delay a vote on a higher-end housing development near downtown and whether it would set a precedent. I think it's a misnomer that developers don't want to pay fair wages. Next story, next up on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, a new survey finds fathers in McLean County are often underrepresented in programs for children and families. A lot of that is because fathers don't um, know that they can be involved sometimes. One coalition wants to change that, plus a profile of McLean County history makers Charles and Willie Halbert. Standing up for causes, to me, is quite obvious. You mistreat someone, you disrespect someone, it's wrong. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR Network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Here My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. My second piece of advice would just be talk to somebody that's wearing some hearing aids. Boy, after I got them and now that I'm wearing them, I, I wear them every day now. I'm a member. I'm in that club. I get it. And it's okay to be here. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. The Bloomington City Council is in discussions about whether to apply prevailing wage rules to a private development if there are government incentives at stake. That discussion is spreading beyond the apartment project in question now. Deputy City Manager Billy Tyus spoke with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker. He says there is not yet consensus, but council members are thinking about the bigger picture. That issue is not just about wages. It's about what people are paying for sure, but also about training opportunities. It's about, you know, outside of this project, what could a plan or a program look like? And what could the tenants of that look like? And so we're researching, we're having those conversations and more to come. So it sounds like whatever emerges on this particular project could be used as a template to prevent this sort of questioning in future projects. Yes, and I think it's fair to say while, you know, the overarching goal would be to come up with something that works for development in our community because there's a, there's a lot happening here now. There's a lot of building happening here now. There will be lots more building happening here now. Yeah, one of the goals would for sure be how can we do something that could be helpful on projects going forward regardless of what those are as it relates to labor. How has the city weighed these issues uh, prior to this? Has the benefit of development outweighed the wage and local labor issues? Yeah, I don't think it's an outweighing at all. I think it is a question of how can you encourage all of it? I think it's a misnomer that developers don't want to pay fair wages. In a market that is as tight as this in terms of employment, et cetera, et cetera, when you're building, you have to. I mean, in order to get employees on the job. So the market, to some degree, determines a lot of that. But by the same token, we haven't, in this community and other communities, frankly, haven't necessarily come up with a template or a system that places guarantees. We don't know what something like that could look like. We don't want to do something knee-jerk, frankly, that has unintended consequences as well. I think that's an important point to make. But we, you know, we're, it's something we're working on. Those who've raised questions about the issues surrounding this development 
have asked, why isn't there an affordable housing project instead of this project, which is more upscale? Of course, part of the answer to that is the market decides, but but how has the city begun to address the affordable housing issue in general? This project is a piece of a bigger overall housing puzzle. And you need all levels of affordability in a community such as ours. Studies have shown that. It's not an either or question. We need both affordable housing. We also need market rate housing. We also need higher end housing. We need all of it. And community partners, including the city, are continuing to work on that issue. Having said that, in this TIF district, half a block to the east of, of this proposed development, the city council did almost the same level of redevelopment agreement in 2018 for a 52-unit senior affordable housing development in the former Bloomington High School. Beautiful units that are up and running now. Again, it's, it's affordable housing with income limits right down the block. Staff and the city partner with Habitat for Humanity every year through our CDBG program, again, to provide affordable housing through that well-known program. We provide letters of support for developers, private developers who use low-income tax credits uh, for affordable housing. Currently, there are, I think, 19 or 20 affordable housing properties in Bloomington, not including the Habitat homes or what are known as housing choice programs. And again, to be clear, I'm not saying that's enough. So there's facilitating state grants, there's TIF district incentives, there's letters of support. Should the city be more directly involved, say, with rent subsidies to make projects pencil out? Are there other tools in the kit that the city could use? There are other tools for sure, but we often utilize them on a project-by-project basis. Not all tools fit all projects. The city isn't out specifically developing housing. We are facilitating the development of housing from other developers and builders. Another thing I'll say is that we've stood up programs for our allocation of ARPA funds. One of those categories is for housing rehabilitation for low to moderate income individuals. And those will be direct individual payments for improvements to some of our local housing stock. That category in particular is to improve the housing stock for some of our most vulnerable populations. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. We're talking as we do each month with Bloomington City officials today. It's Deputy City Manager Billy Tyus. You mentioned affordable housing rehab grants. What's the timeline on those? As you know, federal funding, there, there are a lot of things that you have to do in order to make sure that you're in line with guidelines for spending. Our staff has worked through the development of programs for that. We actually stood those programs up on May 1st which is really not a long time ago, which was you know roughly three weeks ago. We have begun accepting applications for uh, the categories of grants. With the housing in particular, as those grants, come, those requests come in on a first come first serve basis, we review applications and then, you know, based on the federal and local guidelines, and then we will begin to make allocations. It's the same case with the other categories as well. There are um, uh, not-for-profit grants that are being, being provided and business rehab grants as well. So again, I would expect that in particular on the not-for-profit side, you'll start to see notifications happen probably within the next week or so, very, very shortly. The not-for-profit grants are uh, up to a quarter million dollars as the maximum. Uh, How many applications have you gotten from from not-for-profit agencies? I I know that we've, we've gotten some. There are, I believe, two or three grants of up to 250. Then there are several others of up to 150, and then the rest of the funding available to other requestors. A three-week turnaround and awards are starting to happen. 
What are you looking at? That's a fairly compressed time period for review. Sure. Especially with the um, the not-for-profits, the applications have to align with some of those things that have happened in comprehensive plans and other priorities identified through plans in our community. We have to make sure some of the technical requirements of a federal spending are met, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, there's not any one thing. That's Bloomington Deputy City Manager Billy Tyus. He spoke with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker. There's your classic donut, frosted, unfrosted, sprinkles. And then there's the donut of business development. That's next time on Marketplace. Listen beginning at 5.30 on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media. This is WGLT Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. A new survey finds that fathers in McLean County are often underrepresented or marginalized within organizations and programs that serve children and families. That survey comes from a pair of Illinois State University researchers. It's on behalf of the McLean County Fatherhood Coalition. That's an offshoot of BrightPoint, the agency formerly known as Children's Home and Aid. WGLT's Ryan Denham spoke with those researchers, Jordan Arianis and BrightPoint's Dorothy Davis, about the survey and the Fatherhood Coalition's launch five years ago. There's not enough fatherhood involvement, and a lot of that is because fathers don't Um, know that they can be involved sometimes. They break up, divorce, separate, and sort of assume the mom will take care of everything and move on about their merry way. But there is a sad lack when the father's not involved with children and families. The kids tend to get in more trouble, more legal trouble. Their grades drop. They have social problems. So it's not a positive scenario for children. So to make to kind of reach out to dads and let them know you are important and you are needed for the kids as well as the mom was the premise. What are the kind of the things that it does uh, with that goal? Well, with that goal, we first started off with the goal of having a dad's group. So we got together and we found someone to facilitate the dad's group, and that started a whole different level of communication for dads. Got a grant from DCFS, and it's for fathers to be involved with their children, the grant is. So that allowed us to have workshops for dads. Uh, We have something called Dad's Talk, which is like a TED Talk, but not quite. And uh, we have different dads come on and talk about different topics. Plus, we got Dr. Jordan and Dr. Kyle Miller to jump on board from ISU and started doing research for us so we knew more specifically where to go with our coalition. Well, Dr. Jordan Arianis, let's uh, bring you into the conversation at that point. So how did this the spring 2022 survey uh, come about and, and what are some of the top level findings? We sent out a survey to over 300 community partners in McLean County um, and these individuals based from within the schools or community based organizations to the faith based uh, leadership, and also medical offices. Um, we really tried to attempt to survey all members of local community that work directly with families. Uh, we received responses back from about 140 different professionals in McLean County, and we learned that there really was this gap, like Dorothy was saying, in the va- actual available services for fathers. Uh, we found that 85% of community organizations don't offer father-specific programming, 
and only about four percent, excuse me, have reviewed their policies and activities to consider their level of father friendliness, or even how they can improve their programs to become more father uh, friendly. We also found that only about eight percent had actually asked fathers themselves about what their needs and concerns and interests were. Um, from from the, within the community. So in looking at your findings, you have this phrase in there that really jumped out at me that there is a, a systemic bias against fathers. I wonder if, if one of you can kind of explain that and how that plays out. There's a lot of services out there for women and children in the communities. But within saying that, that doesn't leave room for fathers. If the, the services themselves say women and children, that doesn't necessarily talk about the men that are involved in these families' lives. So there's that part of it, but there's also you know policies that are out there that you know favor women as far as part of the uh, family relationships. Maybe that's divorce proceedings, or maybe that's even the imprisonment system, right? So there is some level of bias against men in these situations, and so we want to be able to go and provide services for these men to be able to overcome these stereotypes. One of the things that I tell um, my class and some other people within the community is this isn't just a pro-men idea. This is also pro-women, right? For example, if you consider the glass ceiling ideology where women are working so hard and we've done such a great job of getting women to be able to get to these top points within society, but on top of that glass ceiling is a layer of concrete there's all the myths and stereotypes that are about men. And until we start to chip away at those stereotypes, then we also can't fully support the lives of women as well. So this isn't just a men's only issue. This is also an issue that impacts the entire family as well. That is ISU psychology professor Jordan Arianis, as well as Bright Point's Fatherhood Coalition staff member Dorothy Davis, speaking with WGLT's Ryan Denham. The Fatherhood Coalition is hosting two events in June. One is an expert panel discussion about substance abuse among fathers. That'll be June 13th at 10 a.m. The other is a Learn to Fish event. That'll be at Miller Park on June 24th from 9 to noon. Stories and conversations around Bloomington Normal and McLean County. This is WGLT's Sound Ideas. Today is the final installment of WGLT's interviews with the 2023 class of McLean County history makers. Last but not least, WGLT's Laura Nordicke talks with Willie and Charles Halbert who have fought for equality and human rights in Bloomington Normal for decades. Willie first attended Illinois State University as a drama major, but said theater wasn't quite the best fit. When I decided to come back, I said, okay, God, I'm going to open this catalog, and wherever it turns to, that's what I'm going to major in. And when I opened it, it was criminal justice, and I wasn't quite sure what that was, so I went and met with the department head, and then he introduced me to a guy there by name was Jerry Gilmore, and he was so enthused and excited about the work about helping people and making a difference. I said, that's what I want to do. Charles majored in economics by default, he says. I was I'm majoring in uh, business. And uh, along the way back then, I got I got drafted before I finished. Uh, I, I had one year left when I went into the Army. I was a medic and an uh, operating room technician. I got out and came back to ISU to finish my last year. But the finishing business would take me two years. Uh-huh. And, and so I opened the catalog. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, econ, I could finish uh, in a, less than a year. Charles then worked his way up the ladder at State Farm. I'll tell anybody that'll listen that uh, I had uh, uh, good years and not as good years, but I didn't have any bad years. State Farm was very good to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, with my medical background, 
back in the day, State Farm sold health insurance. And, and I, I was a, just a natural fit. Willie Halbert's career was spent in the correctional system. And I remember my first day working at Pontiac Correctional Center when I walked in. And when I went in, there was an officer. They were hearing uh, disciplinary tickets for inmates. So he had to step out. And there was another inmate sitting right there. And I remind you, this is my first day there. So I sit down and the officer say, one minute, I'll be back. So he takes his jacket off. He puts it on the chair. And the inmate, when he leaves, the inmate takes, goes in the jacket of this officer and he takes something out of the officer's jacket right in front of me. So the officer comes back and I say to the officer, um, what would you think about a person that would go in someone's pocket and take something out with, without them being there? He said, well, that's low down. I said, well, he just did that. And the inmate like, I can't believe you told on me. I said, if you are that stupid to do that right in front of me, it shows a lack of respect for yourself and for me. Because when they looked at me, I didn't look like the typical person that would work in a prison environment. So from that day on, I had gained their respect immediately. Anything you do in that environment, everyone knows about it. Mm. So they saw within moments a person they thought would, would not last two weeks in this environment to my retiring from there. So I worked as a counselor, a casework supervisor, and then I worked for the entire state as assistant superintendent for the prison system and for parole. Where did you get that confidence? When I was a, a little girl, I was about 12, 13 years old. I had 10 brothers and sisters, 10 of us all together. So wow. there was nine. So one day, my dad, who was a minister, pastor of a church at Mount Olive in Harvey, he called me downstairs. So I go downstairs and my dad looks at me and he says, you don't think much of yourself, do you? And I said, no. And he said, well, I want to share something with you. You know, God made you special to do a special work and no one can do it like you. And as he began to speak to me, I was like 12 or 13. I started squaring my shoulders back, holding my head up. And by the time he got done, my whole perception of myself changed. Charles, I know you are also from a large family. Yes, I was seven children in in my family. And also a preacher's kid, right? Also a preacher's kid. (laughs) How do you think those commonalities play out in your your marriage and your life together? My wife is a, is a visionary, and uh, I'm not, but I'm uh, a good partner for, for her. Uh, we, we often say that um, uh, neither one of us is perfect, but together we are perfect. He's more on the quiet side, but he really is not quiet. You know, in today's vernacular, uh, it's often said that uh, if you see something, say something. Willie and I have always practiced that before before this was uh, common to, in the, uh, the language. But we add, uh, if you see something, say something, and do something. And do something. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what did you see that sparked your activism? When they were naming the street or renaming the street, Dr. Martin Luther King. People, it was just an outcry. People said, nobody wants to live on a street name after Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was such a thing that we were, I mean, I was going to the city council meetings, I was protesting, saying that, you know, this man has done so much for our country, and they did rename the street. But what's interesting about that, 
the mayor had called me in and they were looking at me for the position on the Human Relations Commission. It was Mayor Smart at the time. He said, Willie, everything about you shines. He said, but this is one thing. I said, well, Mayor, what might that be? <laughs> he said, well, on renaming the street, you were so vocal. It's like you were beating a dead horse. I said, but the horse wasn't dead to me. That was my whole point. Mm -hmm. And if what I did is something that would keep you from putting me on the Human Relations Commission, I recommend you not put me on because that's the person that you're going to get. Mayor Smart did put Willie Halbert on the Human Relations Commission, a position she held for over a decade. Standing up for causes, to me, is quite obvious. You mistreat someone, you disrespect someone. It's wrong. And if we have to legislate that to get people to do the right things, then so be it. Do you think that your your respective times working for uh, on behalf of city committees and I know, Charles, you've also been involved in the police and fire commission. And, you know, do you do you sense that through your tenures with those organizations and committees that things have improved? There are things that we need to work on, but at least what I have found that when I sit down with the police chief or when I sit down with the uh, McLean County Health Department, they're open to the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we're shut down or shut out. We are invited to the table. And to me, that's a difference. Things are better, um, but there's uh, also additional work to be done. Back in, back in 1984, uh, that was the first year uh, Martin Luther, that there was a Martin Luther King holiday. I took off work. I remember telling a uh, colleague, uh, I said, I'm taking off Monday for the holiday. He said, what? He said, what, what holiday? Uh, now, uh, me, me being uh, one of maybe three persons of color in, in, that, in the whole organization where that I worked in, uh, I took that stand. Just That was me personal. Uh, but I took my, my uh, two daughters. They were six and nine. Six and nine. Uh, I, was, took a, I was taking them to the uh, uh, Castle Theater. I remember this. And I, I parked in the parking lot across the street. And I took my two daughters by the hand to walk them safely across the street. Somebody drove by in a pickup truck, hmm. rolled one of them down, and said, yelled, um, Martin Luther King sucks. And my, my two daughters immediately started questioning mm. me about, you know, why'd they say that? Um, I didn't have an answer. Willie and Charles Halbert remain active in the Bloomington Normal NAACP and are deeply involved at Mount Pisgah Church. You can celebrate them and all the History Makers on June 21st at the History Makers Gala. Details and the complete series of interviews can be found at WGLT.org. The Halberts spoke with WGLT's Lauren Warnicke. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today came from WGLT's Ryan Denham, Charlie Schlenker, and Lauren Warnicke. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR Network.